Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. This is one of my favorite kind of interviews, an opportunity to talk to a philosopher who also works in concrete ways on issues of food justice. It's also a chance to talk to a friend of mine. This week, Joey Aloy and I talk about his work with Just Transition and Sustainable Agriculture Organizations in West Virginia, the history of that state and its relationship to food and energy, the aesthetics of experiencing natural beauty, and more. Even more than most episodes, I strongly recommend you go to our website and check out the show notes for this one. Let me read Joey's bio. Dr. Joey Alloy is the Food Hub Marketing Specialist for Kisra Paradise Farms. He's a former university teaching fellow and recently received his PhD in environmental philosophy at the University of North Texas, and you'll hear me congratulate him about that at the top of the interview. He's been with Kisra since 2015, where he coordinates food safety work, spearheads sales and marketing, and coordinates aggregation and distribution as a member of the Turnrow Collective. He's also the president of the board of directors for the West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition. As a researcher, Aloy tends to practice field philosophy at the intersection of philosophy with environmental Appalachian studies. His dissertation, Participation in the Play of Nature, is a Gadamerian approach to environmental aesthetics, which we talk about toward the end of the conversation. And now, here's my conversation with Joey Aloy. Let me start by saying congratulations on uh, defending your dissertation successfully, Dr. Aloy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it was a long time coming, and uh, it was a super exciting event. I had uh, 10 or so former colleagues uh, from UNT show up in the Zoom meeting in addition to my committee, and I just did not see that level of support from... I didn't expect to see that level of support from folks I hadn't seen in years. Sure. I mean, so was so the entire thing was handled uh, remotely. Yeah, absolutely. I was, you know, I was looking forward to a trip to Texas, and I am still looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, once uh, humans travel places again, I've heard that 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 may start someday. I hope so. Hope so. Yeah, I when I was defending my dissertation, uh, one of my um, uh, one of the people on my committee was remote, and they were at a Starbucks because that had the best Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you could kind of hear Starbucks happening in the background. And, uh, you know, I must think that must have been a weird experience for the other people just trying to drink a coffee, hearing my fate being decided. <laughs> yeah, um, it could be exciting. You know, I mean, I always love eavesdropping on people's conversations at Starbucks or wherever, but uh, usually I, I can comprehend the conversations and I bet that there were at least some befuddled folks there in the coffee shop. Yeah, I have to think. So uh, you are you work with a lot of different groups uh, over there in West Virginia, it seems like. So I thought maybe we could go through some of them. You could talk about um, what those organizations are and what you do for them as sort of a way to get into this, uh, the sort of more activist work that you do. And then I'll bother you about the academic ends of things. Yeah. So um, what is KISRA? So KISRA stands for the Kanawha Institute for Social Research and Action. And it's, a, uh, it's about a 25-year-old nonprofit based in West Dunbar, which is um, 
in the Charleston, West Virginia metro area, um, sort of halfway between the uh, city center um, and uh, West Virginia State University, the um, historically black college for the Kanawha Valley. And um, Kizer started like literally out of the basement of a church uh, working on childhood literacy issues. And from there took a much, you know, step-by-step, -step, much broader perspective at looking at um, all sorts of social and economic issues that confront families in this part of West Virginia. Um, starting, moving from childhood literacy to, to adult literacy, moving from adult literacy to uh, employment, dealing um, with a lot of reentry issues. That's probably what um, Kisner's probably most famous for uh, fatherhood program um, that uh, I can't remember when it started, but primarily geared at helping uh, men, formerly incarcerated men, become better fathers and gain visitation rights if they'd lost them, that sort of thing. Um, and out of that work, uh, and all of that, by the way, I can't take credit for any of that work. It was going on years before I was here, and I also wouldn't know how to do it if you gave me a paint-by-numbers version. <laughs> I am by no means a social worker. Uh, I got hired at Kizzard to do, because I did philosophy of food, basically. Um, we started in 2013 a farm. So a lot of the program participants for years had been saying, this is great. I love everything you're teaching me. I have a solid resume. I know how to um, go into a job interview and and all those things, but I don't have any career prospects for me because they always make me check off on the resume whether I'm a felon or not, and then they won't hire me. And so we thought that um, actual hard job training, not just soft skills, was important. Um, Kizer had, well before my time, a... Uh, construction trades program, helping people learn how to build houses. That went belly up in 2009 for reasons you can probably imagine, right? Uh, right, just not, along with everything else. Yeah, I mean, not a good not a good uh, career to train people in if you're trying to help them get a job back then. Um, so after a little bit of reassessment, sustainable agriculture seemed like a new and growing field, and I think in a lot of ways it still is. So the farm is primarily a training farm. It's like literally a farm. Uh, we have two greenhouses. Um, in addition to those two greenhouses, about 40 odd raised beds outside. We have space for another greenhouse and even more raised beds um, eventually. And a chicken coop out back. We have uh, a warehouse facility where we're trying to develop a vertical farm system, still very much in production, not operational. Um, one of our, our main greenhouse is completely hydroponic, and the other one mixes uh, aeroponic production with traditional in-ground growing. Um, and then we have a fairly large um, warehouse packing house area. So we've got more cold storage than we could ever need based on our production. Uh, and we have um, wash stations and pack stations and ice and pull behind coolers. We have a couple of trucks, one of which is refrigerated um, for transporting produce. 
And thinking that's really, that's, that's about it. And the, the point is we built the farm not just to serve as a way to train folks in every step of the food production and distribution system, I guess, um, but also to be able to use those resources, the trucks, the cold storage, the washing and packing station, um, to support other farmers, especially small farmers who don't have uh, the cash to invest in their own cold storage or are unsure whether they want to invest in a washing station or something like that. So it's sort of like a food hub where farmers can come together and uh, pool resources. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, we talk sometimes about having some food hub services that we provide because kids are by ourselves, Paradise Farms. Paradise Farms is the name of the farm that is under the Kisra umbrella. We talk about food hub services because by ourselves, we have all these things we can offer to other farmers, but we can't do the sort of sustained, all the other work that a food hub does without partners. And those partners together form what we call the Turnrow Collective. Yeah, so talk about what that Turnrow Collective is. Yeah, so um, it's, it's, a, it's literally just a collaboration between different food hubs. So there's... Us, there's the nonprofit uh, Refresh Appalachia in the Huntington area, mostly in Wayne County, West Virginia. Um, Sprouting Farms, which is based out of uh, Talkett in the Greenbrier Valley uh, of West Virginia. Sort of, they're the more traditional agricultural region of the state. Uh, New Roots Community Farm in Fayette County, uh, more in the, I guess you would call coal fields. And we have other uh, partners like Garrett Growers in uh, the Allegheny Mountains of Maryland. So sort of right, if you look at West Virginia, we've got two panhandles and the eastern panhandle has what looks like a big tooth jutting into it. That's Allegheny County, Maryland. And then um, Lewis County Farmers Market. I can't remember who else, everyone that's involved. Grow Ohio Valley in Wheeling, which is in the northern panhandle. And pretty much all of these programs are either, like us, farmer education for um, either growing a new generation of farmers or helping um, workforce development for folks who have who are difficult to employ, or um, they are uh, farm viability organizations. So Garrett Growers, for example, is like it's a collection of small farmers who get together to market uh, themselves collectively and to do aggregation and distribution stuff that food hubs usually do, but maybe more along the lines of an old fashioned farmers co-op at Garrett growers. Um, Preston County workshop does the same thing right next door. Um, but basically when we get all these partners together, because we are statewide and even region wide, uh, what we are able to do is aggregate and distribute produce basically all across West Virginia. Um, with a few forays into uh, Western Maryland, Southwestern Virginia, Southeastern Ohio, and um, provide farmers with uh, access to markets they couldn't get otherwise. So we do wholesale and retail, which is an incredibly tricky business for any food hub to get into to have different product streams. But the wholesale more or less pays the gas and the retail is more or less 
advertising. So people know Turnrow because, oh yeah, Turnrow, I get on the online farmer's market and I can pick up two bars of soap and a dozen eggs and they come from totally different regions of the state basically to my yard. And do you do partnerships with like restaurants in the area? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Most of the wholesale that we do is what we call niche or specialty wholesale. And that's to farm to table restaurants, um, independent grocers. We have a few partnerships with traditional grocers, but not much. Um, So there's like a, in Huntington, there's a a local food grocer called the wild ramp. And um, in rural West Virginia, like hours away from a four lane road, these are um, grocery stores in areas that are often food deserts because their for-profit grocery stores kind of fail because West Virginia has a declining um, population. It has an older population, not really the sorts of demographics that lead Kroger or whoever to start new grocery stores. Yeah. And, you know, I did work with uh, Food Hubs when I was at Michigan State as a PhD student, and the ability to connect farmers working on a relatively small scale with restaurants that are interested in or committed to local food or farm to table kind of, you know, transparent uh, pipelines like that can really be powerful. I mean, it's much more than any one farm could do on their own. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, we're a fairly sizable operation within the network and um, we cannot consistently provide product to restaurants will have weeks or months where the aphids just wipe us out right and every farmer in the world (laughs) deals with that sort of ability of production (laughs) and restaurants just can't handle that they want consistent uh supply and so you need to i mean farmers need to work collaboratively um if we want to keep restaurant customers as continual customers um there's no restaurant in the world that can uh, afford to just shut down for um, a few weeks while farmers get their production back up and running. They're going to need to switch, and they're going to need to, and they're going to switch to Cisco or U.S. Foods or whoever it is that uh, the industrialized food system that's going to be able to provide them consistent pro- product. Yeah, although we're running a real-time experiment as to whether or not restaurants can survive to shut down yeah, right. for weeks or months at a time. <laughs> How are some of these organizations you're working with uh, responding to the pandemic? Well, um, I, I, this is, you know, there have been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of news coverage of agriculture and food in the pandemic, and the stories that you hear most often are first, restaurants are closing and failing, um, and there's not a lot that a coalition of farms can do. <laughs> For that, um, but the things <laughs> the things that you hear more often are, uh, especially in March and April, we heard this that there is just a massive lack of supply at grocers and massive overproduction uh, at farms. And the reason is that uh, in the in an industrialized food system, farmers have to have very specific product specifications, packing specs. Um, for their products if they want to get them sold. If you have 600 acres of potatoes, you need to know that they're sold before before you start working them because the labor costs and the supply costs and everything are so astronomical. And so if your outlet is a French fry processing plant uh, and we have a pandemic, all of a sudden you've got acres and acres of potatoes that you can't sell. 
Um, where, meanwhile, Kroger's can't get their hands on potatoes. Um, Turno doesn't do that. So we have the same packing specs for all of our markets. And it's like a bit of a hard sell for restaurants at first. But what that meant is that we had an astronomical drop in restaurant sales. And um, I think it was 600% growth in direct-to-consumer retail sales within the same week. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And you can do that when you are very thoughtful about um, making your food system resilient. Um, we, have a, we have a food system that's focused on production nationally, internationally. Production as measured by dollar amount, right? There are lots of uh, agricultural economists and sociologists who will argue about whether or not the industrial food system is uh, most efficient in terms of pounds of produce per acre or whether um, more traditional peasant models of agriculture are more productive in that way or um, sustainable or organic small-scale production I don't I you know I me mean, I'm a philosopher I don't I don't know how to deal with those empirical arguments right <laughs> I mean somebody's got numbers out there and if they're disagreeing about it I don't have an answer to that um, but I can say that Resiliency is something that you can measure, and the pandemic showed us how. And Turnrow is more resilient than the traditional or the conventional food system. There's nothing traditional about it. Right. And not only is it more resilient as an institution so that you're doing well, but it also adds to the sustainability of the communities that it's in touch with, I would imagine, because you're, I mean, when there's a lot of potatoes that are getting plowed back into the field because you can't connect with buyers that also means that there's less food for people to literally have access yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, because some of Turnrow's core members are um, nonprofits, we have sort of that deep place-based regional knowledge, like who are the philanthropists who are going to help us deal with this, right? And we also have relationships with food banks. So um, our wholesale sales looked dramatically bad for a week or two, and then we were selling wholesale to the Mountaineer Food Bank out of Gasaway, um, and they were their staff was packing in things to deliver to folks because, you know, restaurants didn't just lose customers; they also lost staff, right? And um, and a lot of people lost their jobs and needed to rely on the emergency food network, and we were able to pivot to those folks as well and find the uh, philanthropists who were able to. I don't know if you want to say subsidize or foot the bill for that kind of thing. So um, what I hear most often is in rural areas where industrial agriculture prevailed, people were experiencing very severe hardship, not being able to get their hands on food. And the uh, industrial farms literally right next door just could not afford the labor to get the potatoes or whatever it is to those food banks. And we could do that because we know who to go to to find the funds and how to pack it and yada yada. And it's just that sort of place-based knowledge that environmental philosophers have been talking about for years and vaguely saying is a good thing and not really explaining why. And now we have a pretty good explanation of why. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, you know, one of these days when this podcast becomes hugely successful, <laughs> I'll get Amartya Sen on to explain that almost all the time the hunger issues are about a disconnect like that of yeah. people being unable to have, and they have plenty of food. They just can't find a way to get it to connect with the people that need it. 
Um, and so then you're also uh, associated with the West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition. In fact, uh, in your bio, it says you're president of the board of directors. So what is that organization? Uh, that's a great inspiring story about my ascendancy to the president position. The story is if you stick around long <laughs> enough, they'll put you in charge of shit. Can I cuss on the podcast? Is that okay? Absolutely. I mean, you might not want to admit that you had to kill several people to get that job on the podcast, but otherwise we're fine. Um, yeah, we, so the Food and Farm Coalition's been around, um, oh, nine or 10 years as an independent nonprofit. So we were originally um, a project of the West Virginia Community Development Hub. And the original goal was to just help network communities of farmers, of food businesses, restaurants, whatever. Um, so that we could help lift each other up and um, learn best practices, share best practices. Um, the coalition's really grown a lot since then. Um, one of the one of the first ways that we grew was by learning that an awful lot of what uh, small farmers across the state shared as hurdles was um, regulations, laws, right? So. Um, we just spent, I don't know what, however long it was, 15 minutes talking about the differences between small scale, local, sustainable ag and the industrial food system and how that played out during the pandemic. Um, the legislature in West Virginia, as many other places, um, knows that it has to regulate agriculture and food production in general, or else you can get shady folks just selling poison, right? Um, one of the reasons yeah. absinthe was banned a hundred years ago or whenever it was is because shady liquor salesmen just uh, had moonshine and they dyed it with copper to make it look green. And, you know, like the these horror stories are all over the place, right? Uh, yeah. But in smaller states like West Virginia, especially where agriculture doesn't have the economic presence that maybe it does in a place like Michigan or Texas uh, or California for sure, right? Um, they just kind of take over the laws from some other state and they're like, okay, Iowa must know what's important for agriculture. And so the regulations just don't suit the farms at all. There might be some slight geographic differences <laughs> between West Virginia and Iowa. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, maybe a little bit. And, and, you know, I mean, geography affects economy, right? Um, that's right. what they taught us in grade school geography classes anyway. Um, so the coalition um, did things like change the rules for uh, rabbit or chicken processing, right? If you want to sell to a restaurant or at a farmer's market chicken or rabbit meat, you are allowed to process that on farm, do on farm slaughter the same way that people have processed chickens for like thousands of years. Um, rather than waiting in line for weeks or months at a USDA slaughterhouse and paying rates that make it so you're going to have to charge $60 a chicken or something like that. Um, and basically also giving the chickens just much less humane living condition or, you know, dying conditions, I guess, at a slaughterhouse than would be available otherwise. Uh, those sorts of legislative changes, um, made a big difference for smaller farmers in terms of uh, farm viability. And um, I, I'm trying to think of other less, uh, I guess, gruesome <laughs> examples of legislative changes that we've, we've made. Um, for, for example, just the regulatory burden for farmers who wanted to 
sell in multiple county farmers markets was just sort of uh, outrageous. You just had to fill out different forms for each and every market. And then now we, you know, it's statewide. There's now statewide regulation and uh, the Department of Agriculture regulates it and that kind of thing. Just small things that wouldn't make a lot of sense if you're not neck deep in farm viability in central Appalachia. But those policy differences are statewide. And then in addition, the coalition still does some of that networking and community building. But we have now um, six field staff who just live in their communities and try to find out what the very place-based um, food shed developers is what we call them. Um, they look at the very place-based issues that are facing farmers and uh, food enterprises in this three-county area and try and solve that very specific problem. Um, Coalition does a lot of anti-hunger legislative work. So, I mean, most of our work at the legislature is honestly just trying to stop them from gutting SNAP benefits, right? Same problem mm -hmm. that is going on nationally and in every state legislature as well. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you can connect those things. I, I don't know what's going on in West Virginia, you can tell me, but one of the big sort of leaps forward that uh, farmers markets in Michigan made um, a few years ago was being able to connect that to SNAP yeah. benefits so that you could use SNAP money at farmers markets. And that was a huge development. Yeah, so uh, the coalition helped make it possible to take SNAP at farmers markets sort of at a state level. And then a few years later circled back and said, why aren't, why are only a handful of farmers markets taking them? And um, part of it was because there's just staffing issues, right? Without a market manager, there's nobody there to run the machine. But more often than that, it's because we live in a rural state with low access to broadband and the Department of Agriculture was only, or excuse me, the Department of Health and Human Resources was only giving people uh, plug into an ethernet cord, EBT machines. And so we had to get wireless machines. Um, and, uh, and then the coalition manages the SNAP stretch program, which I think other places, I think in Michigan, they call it the double up bucks maybe. Yep. And that means that if you spend six bucks on six of your EBT food stamp dollars on uh, fresh produce, you actually get $12 worth of produce. Or if you have a small child with you, I think it's, you know, $18 worth of produce and the um, uh, extra funds are made up through various philanthropic agencies who donate money for these purposes. Yeah, and that can be so important because, you know, when you're on a tight food budget, even people that are well-educated, well-motivated, they have every reason to buy healthy food, organic, local, fresh vegetables, all those good things. If you're trying to stretch a dollar, I mean, processed foods that are shelf-stable obviously are a yeah. better investment. Uh, uh, yeah, very much so. And I think a lot of people realized that in March and April when they got the 50-pound bag of pinto beans at Sam's Club or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But we, you know, West Virginia is um, one of those states with the highest rates of poverty in the country. We're up there with Mississippi and Louisiana. It always goes back and forth from time to time. And um, any any sort of local agriculture work that doesn't take that into account and doesn't intentionally reach out and include low-income folks 
is just going to fail in this state. We just can't rely on suburban yuppies with lots of disposable income because we just don't have them. <laughs> that's not that's not what's going on in central Appalachia. Um, so even though for farm viability you want to get the highest uh, price point that you can on any produce or meat or egg or whatever item, um, that really impacts food access issues and we need to have programs like the coalition's snap stretch to sort of cover that gap. Yeah. So, you know, speaking about um, what's going on right now in West Virginia, uh, the paper that you sent along to look at was really fascinating. Just as an aside, I really oh, liked man. reading that paper. It was very well written. I, I for those of you uh, listening to this, I'll put it, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, this one I especially recommend as a really good read. Um, it's right up my alley at any rate. So it looks at the history of uh, sort of how we got to this point in Appalachia through a lens of food and energy. Can you talk, maybe walk us through what the situation was like and how we got to whatever yeah, it's like um, now? Oof. I, I, I mean, it's a small, yeah. it's a small question, small topic. <laughs> I'm trying to figure long. out how I can say it quickly <laughs> and succinctly. Um, yeah. Explain the entire history of the Appalachian region of the United States and every element of what it's like now and where it's going in the future. All right, I'm going to start minutes. with the lowly possum. Uh, right. So uh, mm, I feel like this is a story if you're – so we have, you know, um, academics. We academics who care about Appalachia. We have an Ac Appalachian Studies Conference that's interdisciplinary. Richly trans transdisciplinary, in fact, there's fiddlers who I don't think count as an academic discipline um, who attend as well and activists and all that. Um, and so this story is going to be fairly familiar and sort of, um, I guess you would say, rote to, to those folks. But it's a story that I don't think people hear outside of the region. Um, so the, the settlers, the white settlers of um, Appalachia were primarily homesteaders, right? Um, people who farmed to live and that was it. So um, you have, you know, you have your history of uh, family farms in New England where people, you know, could be prominent agricultural market marketers. And, um, and then you have the uh, atrocities of uh, plantation agriculture in the South. And um, Appalachian farming um, was just totally marginal, and that was that was pretty much the folks who were here were subsistence farmers, um, and it was a very wild type of agriculture too. So typically, when people hear agriculture, they think of folks with a plow making straight lines and planting straight rows of corn, and of course, corn grows here, has grown here um, since well before uh, well before settlers came to the Appalachian region. Um, in fact, all, I mean, pretty much all of what, what I call Appalachian wild agriculture are continuations of traditional uh, Native American agriculture, agricultural practices. Um, but a lot of the energy cycles of the farm were tied to natural energy cycles. So the chestnut was, um, the American chestnut was a major food source, but also a major fodder source, food for uh, hogs, um, cattle sometimes, goats, and uh, hunting and fishing was pretty well relied on. There's sort of, you know, these old stereotypes that the, um, the lowlander Virginian was very industrial 
and worked very hard at plowing the fields. And the Highlander, West Virginian, was just this hillbilly with the gun who would shoot a turkey and then drink moonshine all day because he didn't want to have to work. And of course, we all know that most of the folks in the lowlands weren't, most of the white folks weren't doing the work themselves. <laughs> that part that part gets left out point. of the story. Um, so these subsistence types of agriculture, I, I realize now that I'm spending way too much time telling this story, right? The contrary, okay. this um, is great. The subsistence style of uh, traditional Appalachian agriculture um, relied a lot not just on uh, hunting and fishing, wild game, wild harvesting of nuts, um, but also like harvesting of mushrooms, um, harvesting of pearls, right, uh, from freshwater mussels in uh, the Tennessee River and its uh, tributaries. And um, these things are, are, are still considered culinary um, mainstays in the Appalachian tradition, morel mushrooms and uh, ramps, the wild sort of leek that grows all over the east but is particularly uh, is of particular culinary importance to appalachians um and all the food traditions that we still have that we think of as appalachian food are related to these sorts of homesteading practices right um cornbread and beans are just things that you can cook up in the winter because you had a maybe maybe a modified uh three sisters garden patch or something like that and um Ramp dinners are still super popular. Uh, if you ever feel like coming down to West Virginia, Ian, we'll get you to a ramp dinner come in April sometime. Absolutely. I mean, ramps are fantastic, but they're usually like inexpensive. Not uh, here. Here restaurant. you can get like a, you know, like what would be what would be considered like a $16 edition of ramps. They'll just spoon it onto a cafeteria tray, uh, stewed, and it's delicious. It's um, a different way of cooking. And... And there's this, I mean, there's just this abundance and fecundity in the Appalachian forest still, even after centuries of um, exploitation and destruction and environmental degradation, a uh, century and a half, I guess. Um, and that's what the sort of Appalachian farm is set into, is reflective of. Um, that's what the culinary traditions are all about. Totally different um, from the urban hydroponic farm that we have here in Dunbar, uh, but um, there's long stories about that that I could get into, and I won't. Um, but those that sort of um, homesteading tradition kind of came to an end for much of the Appalachian region, not all of the Appalachian region, but for much of it when they discovered coal underneath the hills. And um, because there's always... So there's always been, in the Appalachian homesteader's mind, there's always been more wild land. A lot of times people didn't mind saying, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll sell you this patch of land as long as I can keep that piece up there. And then they have an industrial site at their old farm homestead. They can't go gather mushrooms there anymore. Um, the forest commons is gone, right? Stephen Stoll um, writes a book called Ramp Hollow, which is a, it's a history of Appalachia. Um, and he, he refers to it as uh, just a continuation of the enclosure movement. Um, the, these, these forest commons are um, becoming private property specifically for mineral extraction. And this was sometimes done sort of taking advantage of the naivety of Appalachian farmers, but was much more often done, uh, well, I don't know whether it's more often or not. It was often done in a shady manner um bankers or other developers uh 
would just go to the county courthouse and notice that these illiterate homesteaders had not filed any property deeds and they would get a court to declare that they were squatters and would take the land, um, would take the homestead away from people. And uh, coal development um, just meant that if you were going to continue to live in Appalachia, you had to work for a coal mine in certain parts. And to do that, you had to live in a much more dense living environment. You would maybe be able to have a small garden patch. You would probably be working 16-hour days, though. You would be working underground, uh, away from the sun, which is the source of life for any agrarian, um, but especially for a wild agrarian where your patterns of food production and consumption are tied so heavily to the seasons and to the appearance of wild foods, the pawpaws in the fall and persimmons a little bit later. Your food now comes pr predominantly from the company's store, which is an economic entity controlled by the same company that pays your bills. So they can be sure that you are always in the red and are never able to move out to some other agricultural place or whatever. Um, is that a, is that a decent summary of what you were reading in the paper? Sure. And uh, what's what one thing that you pointed out in that paper that was interesting to me is that you know that sounds like in many ways a step yeah. down, right? <laughs> it seems sounds bad, uh, and yet nowadays presumably because it isn't seen as an alternative, it's just something being taken away. There are many people that uh, see themselves yeah. as pro-coal, which you point out is a pretty new phenomenon, even in No, I can specifically know, remember. So um, a lot of this, this is something I don't really touch on in the paper, but a lot of this sh shift in narrative has to do with uh, the collapse of organized labor nationally. Um, because when I was, even when I was a kid, um, Coal was just the playing field on which all, all games were happening, right? We understood that coal was, mm -hmm. um, was around, and it wasn't a question of being pro or anti-coal. The question was whether you were in favor of the coal bosses or in favor of the coal miner in terms of organized labor. Um, Steve Earle's got that song, um, Union, God, and Country. My dad was a miner, my daddy's daddy too. Union God and country was all they ever knew. They worked from early morning till the evening was so blue. When they strike the mine, they walk the line, cause that's just what you do. And you're born in West Virginia, a miner through and through. Union God and country was all you ever knew. That's like, that's, that's real. That's legit. I, I would go to, uh, the Farmington mine disaster memorial and, um, people will talk about how the UMWA, um, uh, made sure that disasters like this don't happen anymore. And then they would have a prayer and someone would sing amazing grace. And then the veterans would talk and have their presentation. And it's totally unclear why, why uh, this memorial of a labor struggle is also a religious and uh, military ceremony. But man, that's just like the way that the world is. Um, but then like sometime when I was in high school or college, you know, at the uh, um, roughly around the time of 9-11, right? Um, 
labor unions weren't the coal was the the coal economy in central Appalachia was in such decline um, that it it became just a really ripe time for marketing blitz on behalf of the uh, coal bosses, the coal operators, um, to tell the story that the reason coal was in decline is because of these tree huggers. And that, that really took off under the Obama administration because Obama uh, was disliked already in the Appalachian region for lots of reasons. Racism is definitely one of them. Um, but just uh, his path to electoral victory did not in any way depend on cultivating blue-collar support in the way that maybe even Bill Clinton's did or maybe even Joe Biden's, I don't know. Too early to tell how Biden was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right, we'll see. And and that sort of um, anti... uh, There is an anti... There are anti-coal forces out there. Hollywood liberals... Um, environmentalists and uh, and Obama um, make make it so that people become instead of instead of being pro labor but anti um, coal operator, just become in general pro coal because the economic decline is is real. Um, maybe not in all parts of the country. I don't know, but uh, it's actually you know there the any any uh, clear eyed look at coal job numbers and um, Cold uh, dollars going to state and federal governments from uh, coal. It's just shrinking every year, and it has been since the, well, employment has been shrinking since the 50s when mechanization first set in. Um, But the thing that's really shining to me as a guy who works in sustainable ag as a type of economic um, diversification strategy or just economic transition strategy um, the thing that's really shining is that the, the folks who uh, have been setting sort of economic priorities for the region have not really been interested in anything except traditional industrial development, including coal. But, you know, there's steel in the, in the far northern part of the state, all of which has collapsed. Chemicals here in the um, Kanawha Valley. Uh, some of the oldest chemical plants in the world are from right here in the Kanawha County, where uh, turns out there's a lot of other things in the ground that can be sold in addition to coal. And, and all that's gone. Uh, all that all that has been, um, people know that, and they know that um, their shelter and their food depends on those sorts of market economies. Yeah, and... It is really a profound change. I mean, if you think about how much uh, of the workers' movement in the United States, and actually in the UK as well, but in the United States is wrapped around activists working in coal mines. I mean, you know, the history of American labor is the history of the Ludlow Massacre of, you know, with miners uh, being the driving forces for it. And then, you know, if if their perception is that... uh, there's no friend of labor on either side, but one uh, side is going to let you keep a job and one isn't, then it seems yeah. you know, like your, your hand is forced. But you're talking about just transition. You know, is, do you think that uh, food and sustainable agriculture can be a part of the picture for you know, helping the, the society and I the think economy? It, I mean, I think it absolutely uh, has to be, um, not just because of this sort of agrarian 
heritage of homesteading that I talked about earlier, but also just because for reasons that listeners to your podcast, if this isn't the first episode they've listened to, they will understand that our industrialized food system is genuinely not working for anybody, right? Farmers uh, have the highest rate of suicide of any profession in the country. Um, most farms are massively in debt. Um, agricultural regions of the country, like the Midwest, are uh, shrinking in population as farm sizes continue to grow. Um, the uh, amount of uh, um, pesticides used is having real effects on, um, for example, the number of like bugs that hit your windshield, right? Um, I mean, I can, I mean, it, just like 15, 20 years ago, I can remember more bugs hitting my windshield and I'm not an old dude. Right. It's an interesting way to do your own, uh, you know, uh, entomological research study. Just can't, can't get bugs, right? Yeah. This is, that's field philosophy, right? How many dead bugs I got on the windshield? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we need to we need a different food system. We need one that's more friendly to farmers and one that's more friendly to uh, to eaters as well. Because a lot of food access issues arise because um, we have pulled food production and consumption so far apart from each other, such that now if you want to eat, if you want to eat, you basically pay money for it. You don't. Nobody grows their own food anymore. We don't even have those puny little victory gardens or whatever. Uh, we need to change all of that for a thousand different reasons. And if we don't do that here in Appalachia, if we can't be the first place to do it, um, I mean, there won't be much else that we have going at all. Um, I, and, 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 you know, I mean, aside from the fact that uh, there needs to be a more robust agricultural economic system in central Appalachia, there, there are there are still lots of cultivatable areas that are just used for hay right now, for example, um, because it's the least, uh, what you call it, least capital intensive method of agriculture. Sure. Hey, it's yeah. like grass growth. Yeah. And then all you, all you need is a tractor. And it, it if it's 80 years old and it still works, who cares? Um, there's much more potential there than in other areas. Um, but, uh, Health, health issues too, right? So the more that you rely on um, processed foods and sort of uh, industrialized foods, the worse it is for your health. And if you're um, living in a region that, that already has limit, limited access to healthcare, hospital, I mean, I think we lost two hospitals in the state of West Virginia during the pandemic. What a horrible time to lose hospitals ever. But I mean, it, it shows how yeah. ridiculous a for-profit health system is anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you eat healthier, it's not, it's not a silver bullet by any means, um, but, it, but it'll help with those things. And I think also, um, I think there are sustainable ways to farm. And I think we're going to have to discover them to be able to adapt to climate change. Um, even if we're not talking about decreasing emissions from industrial style agriculture from industrial, you know, CAFOs that have massive amounts of cow related methane or whatever, even if we're not talking about that, I mean, just being able to get food while climate disruption gets worse and worse and worse, just adapting, not even preventing climate change, just adapting to it. We're going to need food production to be much more dispersed than it currently is. Yeah. So was your interest 
I'm, I'm wondering about the direction of your interest. Like, were you interested in food, you know, connected to these sorts of issues of uh, sustainability and the environment, and then you moved into philosophy, or did you start doing philosophy and then started That's thinking about food question. as a particular um, focus? I mean, I was always interested in food as a kid, well before I knew what philosophy was. I liked that my dad had a garden. I liked uh, goofing off in my dad's garden and um, uh, and that sort of thing. I'm, you know, I'm uh, Alloy is an Italian name, and um, the Italians came as coal miners, but kept culinary traditions that are a little bit different than what most people think of when they think of Appalachian food. Uh, and so that was always something I was thinking about as a kid. But um, then I got into philosophy uh, because of Nietzsche. I was like a kid in a punk band and I liked Nietzsche and then eventually got into uh, hermeneutics from there. Um, and I really didn't even think about um, – food philosophically until um, Christopher Preston, who was my master advisor in, in the University of Montana, um, said, you know, we're doing this thing where we think environmental philosophers should really be um, doing real world experience and we were piloting this internship program. And I think you should intern with my friend Dave because he's a really uh, smart guy and you guys would get along. And Dave Strohmeyer was the guy who wrote the Backyard Chickens bill for missoula montana's city ordinance and so uh, i got to talk with dave about um whether there is a place for urban agriculture from a philosophical perspective dave i think had gone to yale divinity i believe it's been oh 12 years since that internship so i can't remember all the details but that that is when i realized i i'd first i first read wendell berry and realized oh Agriculture, farming, and food consumption as well has a lot of philosophical issues to it. Yeah, I mean, you are one of these uh, really interesting sorts of newer people you see in philosophy. Although, I mean, there's some there's some old guard people who are doing this too, doing this uh, kind of field philosophical work where you are writing philosophy about the things that you're engaged in and you're using the engagement yeah. to think about philosophy, philosophy to think about the engagement sort of back and forth rather than a strictly kind of applied way where, you know, we work out the ethics in <laughs> advance and then we go tell medical yeah. doctors how to use the ethics that worked out or whatever. Yeah. What value do you see in that kind of field philosophy or is it just, you know, such a natural thing for you that you're not, I, it, you know, it's I mean, not it is very natural, really. I think. Um, but to learn how to do it well, it takes a lot of work. Um, we, as philosophers, we really do have to, um, if we want anyone who does philosophy to read our papers, and thank you for reading and enjoying reading my paper, Ian, um, we have to, we have to have a, a little bit of philosophical chops. We have to, you know, read Hegel or something. Um, I guess analytic philosophers probably don't have to read Hegel. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, about half the, the listening audience. Just, um, uh, but, like, you know, whatever you've got to read. Uh, oh, uh, oh shoot, Quine, right? He's not easy either. Yeah. Good job. Good job. I was wondering if you would be able to name an animal. Yeah, um, I was going to time you. But uh, um, that's that takes a lot of skill, and once you've developed that skill, it's difficult to not use it. And um, and at the same time, it's really difficult. To explain, um, for example, why uh, 
the difference between being and the being of beings uh, is relevant to this discussion of, um, you know, palettes of heirloom tomatoes. Um, <laughs> and so you, you have to do the, the field philosophy work in order to make philosophy interesting to anybody who's not already a philosopher. Um, that's how I feel about it anyway. I, I do feel like, um, sure. And, and you know, it's not, I, I don't do this just because I want to be interesting to the guy at the grocery store. Um, like I said, there's a lot of philosophical issues that crop up in this sort of local food work that I do. Um, but if I weren't actively doing the work, if I didn't know, uh, for example, about, um, which different lettuce varieties do better in a hydroponic system versus a dirt system. Um, farmers wouldn't want to hear my two cents on the philosophical issues that I find fascinating in their work. Um, philosophers need to learn how to listen, <laughs> right? Um, but not only that, I do think as a philosopher, it gives you way better and more interesting things to talk and write about. Um, I can, I'm going to try and not name names but ian you invited me to a conference one time where some really brilliant uh academic philosophers were delivering some thoughtful and insightful um papers relating uh i believe it was wittgenstein to um animal um animal justice issues and uh during the question and answer session a philosopher who works with farmers just sort of loudly said, you know, what kind of hogwash is this? None of the farmers who I've ever talked to will say they're in it for anything except making money. Yeah, we need to make a living. We need to keep a roof over our head. And sort of um, your philosophy just becomes better when you uh, have a more accurate idea of why people do the work that they do in the real world. Not that academia is not the real world, but um, it's, yes, it's right. more, it's, it's a more a ideal form, right? Real world. Yeah. Um, but I mean, when, I mean, when philosophers talk about right. farming, there is a real farm, right? That we are not at unless we are actually there. Right. Um, so that's a real, it's, uh, teaching is, is a real skill that takes years to develop. And so is research and so is writing. Um, but so is farming. And if you're going to do research and writing about farming, you got to like actually do it a little bit or else, um, even if you're incredibly bad at it, like I am, I'm just, uh, sometimes I think that, um, I'm just hanging on here by, uh, a thread because sometimes I say something brilliant, but I don't know how to farm. I've been at it five years. I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, you know, either, I don't know a lot of people that are super, uh, confident i mean even people who are excellent at farming would admit that they're excellent at farming uh still tend to be humble about how dependent how dependent it is in, as an activity on yeah, a million factors yeah. you don't have any control over year to year but so uh one other question i had uh, as long as we're on the academic tip is uh you know you've only defended your dissertation <laughs> recently i i want it to only slowly dawn on you that you'll never have to think about your PhD thesis again. I don't want that to be, you know, you don't want that to be a, a rude shock. So to help, you know, ease you into the rest of the world, uh, can you tell us what did you, uh, what was your PhD dissertation about? No, no, it wasn't about this and, work and that, that you're doing in farmers. Is that um, correct? So I, I didn't know what, that I would end in local agriculture, but sort of my, um, my way into this was through the, um, Appalachian Transition Fellowship that uh, 
the Highlander Center in Northeast Tennessee um, put on in 2014 and 15. And, and that was strictly a just economic transition program for young leaders in the Appalachian region. Um, I don't know, Ian, if you know much about the Highlander Center, but you should definitely check them out. And, um, and, and I'll send you some links you can put in there. Um, but I knew that I was going to be coming back to the region, didn't know yeah. if it would be West Virginia. I didn't know if I was going to be working on uh, agriculture or um, sustainable energy or any of the other promising economic transition fields that Highlander had thought about. Um, and so I wanted to pick a dissertation topic that would not be related to any job that I had, just in case I got sick of it, you know? <laughs> and, and I wanted it to be a little bit more evergreen. And so I picked <laughs> environmental aesthetics, which is something I'd been interested in uh, since first um, hearing about it during a summer school course with Andrew Light in 2007 or 8, where he talked about the work of Alan Carlson and said, you know, Carlson was actually around before most of the environmental ethics crowd. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I should check this out. And it's a, it's an evergreen issue, environmental aesthetics. And I also feel like I picked it because um, I do feel like most of the environmental movement was not birthed from ethical concerns, but from aesthetic concerns. These big images, like being able to see the, the earth from outer space or seeing the Cuyahoga River catch on fire, those sorts of aesthetic experiences um, radically transform people's relationship to their environment. And in Appalachia, some of like the examples of strip mining made environmentalists out of a lot of people who would otherwise not know the first thing about acid mine drainage and selenium in the creek uh, if they hadn't had that aesthetic experience of literally seeing the mountain before them disappear. Um, so those sorts of issues were in the back of my head, but I, I wasn't really dealing much with the um, relation between uh, this sort of existential motivation towards ecological thinking. I was writing, I wrote my dissertation about um, the tension between two different camps of estheticians about the proper way to think about what happens when we appreciate nature aesthetically. Um, one group of thinkers, narrative thinkers, think that there's no real aesthetic experience of nature if you can't connect your lived experience to a narrative about nature that explains what you're looking at. Or, or maybe a better articulation of that standpoint is your aesthetic experience of nature is going to be much richer if you understand it either scientifically or if you are looking at a landscape that you have seen discussed poetically or in some other sort of narrative that uh, describes and explains the landscape and gives it a sort of meaning that is communicable um, to folks who aren't having that experience at that moment. Um, the other camp of thinkers, ambient thinkers, argue that uh, really all you got to do is get out there and feel something. And that the more you're relying on traditional narratives to guide you to aesthetic experience of nature, the more you are trapping yourself within this Western tradition of nature or racial or whatever. You should actually just be attending to uh, the synesthetic and kinesthetic relationships that you your body is having with the landscape and 
allowing those experiences to disrupt the traditional narratives that you have about nature, most of which were based on exploitation, destruction, and objectification. Um, so there's those two different camps of environmental aestheticians or aesthetes. Philosophers quit using the word aesthetes because it, um, it had a pejorative connotation. And, and now people are switching back to aesthetes because aesthetician refers often to the lady who does your nails, right? Yeah, yeah. there's no good people word anymore. Ethic, think about aesthetics. Doer. Philosophers who think about aesthetics. Um, and, and my argument basically was uh, there's truth in both of these camps, um, but there is a misunderstanding of how aesthetic experience is related to uh, our understanding of the, of the world if we're not um, paying attention to how, uh, how understanding unfolds, um, how, how understanding is more like playing a game. Um, as Gadamer says, we, we are participating in a tradition, a linguistic and historical tradition, a tradition that has all sorts of material practices um, that allows us to understand and understand aesthetically. And without that tradition to lean back on, we can't revise that tradition. We can't come up with a more clear understanding. But this event of practice um, where we uh, allow ourselves to play the game that nature has is already playing. We join the game that nature is already playing and play along. Um, that can allow us to alter our understanding in a way that is that can lead to genuinely new understanding, but only in as much as it's a revi uh, revision of our previous understanding. Those sorts of tropes that I think are pretty familiar to anybody who does hermeneutic thought. Uh, I thought they really needed to be involved in the conversation of environmental aesthetics, especially since so much of that conversation is about how aesthetic experience is related to more cognitive understandings of landscapes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, coming in and imposing our own narrative seems not desirable, but coming yeah, in right. with no narrative I, at all sounds slightly impossible. It's better to have a better narrative than not to. Um, sure. you, but, uh, uh, um, oh, Noel Carroll, um, prominent aesthetic philosopher there. I avoided saying the problematic words. Uh, Carroll gives the example of a waterfall, right? Um, <laughs> he says, if you see a waterfall, if you come from a planet that has never had a waterfall, and you see a waterfall, you could probably have an aesthetic experience of that waterfall without necessarily needing to participate in this or that specific tradition. And I think Carol's, Carol's probably right, but the idea that you wouldn't have a tradition that discussed water or discussed falling seems preposterous, right? <laughs> you come from some language that discusses those things because what sort of a, a human being would not need water and not experience gravity, right? Um, and that's what waterfall, that's what the word encapsulates, right? So even just being able to say the word for the thing right in front of you already brings along centuries of tradition, all the other meanings of the word water, all the other um, connotations of the word fall, including like the fall of man in the book of Genesis and the fall of the Roman Empire uh, or whatever, right? Um, we don't, we don't get to divorce 
our aesthetic experience from all those meanings that come about in tradition. Um, even though I think that if you want to, you can and should uh, read the work of aesthetically oriented scientists to help you get narratives that are maybe more appropriate than thinking of Gibbon when you're looking at a waterfall. Yeah, and I don't know how disconnected this is from your work now. I mean, the implication that we can't just jump into something as like a blank slate, that the work that you're doing in West Virginia is informed by your own background and your interests and the history of the place, but that you can still be attentive to what the situation actually is and come to form and revise better stories and create a better story moving forward. I mean, those seem, those seem fairly related to me, but uh, I wanted to be sensitive to your time. Um, but one thing that I always ask uh, people to do is bring food to share with uh, the audience. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you would please visit the house of everybody listening to this podcast and uh, cook something for them, I think that it would form a really nice uh, connection and, you know, it would make this episode mean a lot more for them. But, um, you know, until you have the free time to do that, uh, we can do it virtually. So I asked you to think of a recipe that you could talk about. Yeah. So um, the recipe that I, I sent you was uh, anchovy cauliflower pasta. And um, I'm probably going to spend more time talking about why I thought this was a meaningful recipe than actually telling anybody how to cook it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, well, they can they can read the recipe. I'm interested in the the meaning behind it for you. Yeah. So um, I mean, Ian, when when you and I were eating face to face uh, in the past, um, I, I know that you and I both more or less uh, entirely avoided any animal products. And one thing that really changed when I started working in agriculture was my mm -hmm. ability to do that especially small-scale sustainable agriculture. People have like chickens in their yard because otherwise what are they going to do with the 30 pounds of rotten kale? I mean, you can compost it, right? But um, you just let these guys go in the backyard, feed them extra things, and then you could sell the eggs for significantly higher margins than the produce. For whatever reason... People will pay, you know, what's the difference between a six-pack of hams and like a six-pack of microbrew, right? That's like four times more expensive. People will pay extra for beer and people will, sure. for some reason, pay extra for animal proteins. And they will not, people will not pay $8 a pound for turnips, uh, even if that's actually what it costs a farmer to grow them, right? So there is no path to farm viability for the small farmer in Appalachia, at least, that doesn't include some sort of animal husbandry. So I had to get used to that, and I had to like learn how to live with it. And honestly, these critters have pretty, uh, um, pretty healthy lives. And anchovies are definitely not one of the animals that grow in Appalachia. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, you, already, you already told me that pearls grow, which is a revelation for me. So if you had... If you had told me right now that there are freshwater anchovies in the rivers of West Virginia and Kentucky, I would have just nodded and believed you. Yeah, um, but no, I, so uh, there's there's this sort of debate. Uh, Richard M. Hare. So Hare was, uh, is a utilitarian philosopher who taught Peter Singer, um, I believe, or at least who Peter Singer was influenced by. Um, and, the, and the article is called Why I Am Only a Demi-Vegetarian. And he's sort of offering what was an early defense, uh, I think it was in the 90s, of um, what, what ought to get ridiculed as happy meat 
is uh, <laughs> is preferable to a, a completely strict vegetarian or vegan diet. And Peter Singer's response, um, which really struck me as a, uh, you know, I've, I guess I'm a virtuous ethicist, um, was, well, yeah, but, you know, if you eat meat every once and again, even if it's sustainably produced, uh, you're going to break your habits. You're going to, you're going to develop bad habits. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know that a, I don't know that a utilitarian philosopher should have the ability to talk about habits in that way. But, uh, but he's absolutely right that it's, once you have changed your diet, it is difficult to, um, things become a lot grayer. Um, and I think I, I, I listened to your, uh, interview with, uh, Professor Helke, and I think that the idea that we are all always munching on each other is super relevant. And I, I think you even saw me read a paper about the importance of being eaten by bears <laughs> a few years back. And that, and that's the same yeah. argument that Val Plumwood makes in the article about being eaten by a crocodile. Um, it's a relationship that I will never have with an anchovy, no matter how much I would want, because that's not what they eat. Um, but it's really easy to, to let these sorts of things slide back into your life, especially if they have a uh, uh, symbolic importance and meaning. So I don't know that regular Italians do this, but Italians in the uh, coal fields of north central West Virginia have a Christmas tradition of eating, eating a lot of fish, the fe Feast of the Seven Fishes. And I don't know what the seven fishes are. I don't know that anybody knows. Um, there's usually like 11 of them or something like that. <laughs> um, but that's, that's a Southern Italian tradition, sure. I guess, to eat fish on New Year's or Christmas Eve and, um, and Italian cuisine, especially Southern Italian cuisine is just, um, full of these appearances of, uh, of seafood and th this dish in particular is actually a dish that um, I'll, I'll use cauliflower that I've, we've grown right here on the farm. And the cauliflower is the star. But in the same way that an old Appalachian grandma will make you cornbread with soup beans and the beans are the star, but there was just a little bit of a ham bone cooking with them. The anchovies dramatically change the flavor and make it um, have a stronger umami um, and a little saltiness. And, and like I say in the recipe that I sent you, it's totally, um, you know, some Italian might scream it's not authentic to, to put a miso paste or something in there instead, but I would actually advise you to do that. I don't usually, I mean, I'll use anchovies sometimes, but not, uh, not, a, not in a disciplined manner. But uh, this is a, yeah, it's a traditional right. Sicilian dish. And I just think um, raisins, Adding raisins and pine nuts to a savory pasta dish uh, and letting the vegetable, the cauliflower, be the centerpiece is a, is a traditional Sicilian like thing. You'll see it in Capagnata as well, right? The vegetables are the centerpiece. Um, and, and it's not a traditional food that I grew up eating, even though I grew up eating a lot of Italian food. Um, I ate this when I went to Sicily. And I didn't know what I was eating at the time. Uh, the guy's like, you like, uh, you like uh, macaroni, right? And, you know, he didn't know much English and my Italian was pretty bad. And he was speaking a uh, Sicilian dialect anyway. So, like, I couldn't quite follow it. 
Um, and, and I just came home and learned how to, how to do this. And there's, there's this, uh, um, wanting to learn about one's family's traditions that were left behind. So Italians as immigrants assimilated pretty quickly, two generations, maybe three. Um, and a lot of the Italians in my generation are like, like a lot of second or third generation immigrants are sort of like, okay, where's this authentic tradition that I can fall back on and find and yada, yada. And that's, that's sort of this fake authenticity or invented authenticity. Um, inventing meaningful traditions um, is something that I, that Borgman talks about a lot. Albert Borgman, a former professor of mine who I uh, write about in the, uh, in the essay that you were asking me about earlier, Ian. Um, and I think this, dish for me is a great example of that. Uh, maybe um, it's a recovery of a, a focal, the, the dish is a focal thing that has a very meaningful place in like my family's kitchen at home. And it only has that because I went out of my way to find that meaning and sort of create that meaning um, in a way that I guess in England gets called the invention of tradition, uh, but Americans probably do more than anybody else. Yeah, the implication of that, of that is that it's fake or bad in some way. But I mean, you know, Borgman's yeah. conclusions is certainly not that we have too much focal practice uh, in our lives right now, you know. And so if if the idea is that humans need that to not feel alienated and we don't have it now, well, you're going to have to get it from somewhere. And so you, you can't then also tell people that they're bad for creating meaningful traditions in their family. No, absolutely. And I, I, I hope I wasn't implying that. But I, I think just to bring it back around to... My work here at uh, Kizra, how we started the conversation, um, like I said, this is a hydroponic farm. That's not exactly the Appalachian agrarian tradition of homesteading, right? This is a sort of reinvention and reinterpretation. And and we have to make that sort of reinterpretation because we, we live in a radically different world, right? I live in a radically different world than my great grandma who couldn't speak English um, and the farm that I work on is, has to, is, it has to be different because it's a different world. And that doesn't mean that we can't treat it as authentic and as a manifestation of tradition. Um, so I'm allowed to cook this in my kitchen if I want to. Exactly. That's a perfect, uh, circle. I, uh, perfect place to end there. I just want to say thank you so much for participating in this. If people want to learn more about these organizations and find ways to connect or help out, uh, where can they go? So Paradise Farms has a Facebook page, which is updated intermittently. That's the best place to go if you want to see pictures of our CSA, right? <laughs> um, uh, I, I'll say that um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you'll put links into these in the uh, thing, but um, there's a, a Charleston Gazette Mail article that does a really good job of explaining Paradise Farms in particular. Um, Turnrow has a website, Turnrow Farms dot org um the turner appalachian farm collective and and on that website there'll be more information about turner than you could ever ever want uh <laughs> and the west virginia food and farm coalition has a great website as well wvfoodandfarm.org and i would advise anyone to go there especially if this uh, has been a, such an inspiring interview that you are now looking to start a farm in West Virginia, because there is a uh, um, maybe underdeveloped and underutilized uh, land link part of that website. So you can get your, if you want to put in some sweat equity, you can maybe get some land here.
Fantastic. I mean, one of the real problems, in fact, uh, is at places like Michigan State uh, that do a good job preparing people to farm. And there's even actually now at UTRGV where I teach, we have a really good sustainable agriculture and food and food systems uh, major. So people are graduating, but then there isn't uh, a good way to connect them with land, even as older farmers, uh, you know, like their kids don't want to take over the farmland, you know, so there's, there is need on both sides, but making those connections is really tricky. Yeah. It's, and it's a, I mean, it's a full-time job. That's one of the things at the coalition that I hope we can develop even further. Um, one of the ways we'd been doing it though, was like everybody meets on the farm and we have a mixer and a potluck and that's not happening right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everything have to reinvent all of it. But the website's still up. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the nice thing is we've figured out how to uh, replicate all social interaction perfectly online. Uh, this is exactly the same as us having a beer together. So, <laughs> but thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, you know, if there's any of the stuff that I didn't cover uh, well enough, feel free to ask me to come back some other time. That was my conversation with Joey Alloy. Links are in the show notes, including some news stories about and links to the organizations he works with, if you'd like to learn more about those. If you subscribe to Thought About Food and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have thoughts about this episode or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 